whether you're there or with us. Live from the Tasty Cake Studios, where Philly's baseball happens. Sports Radio 94 WIP. Spike Eskin here until 2 a.m. Now, if uh, you are not caught up on Breaking Bad, I don't ever tell you not to listen to the radio program, but I'm warning you that um, we are going to discuss, maybe not too specifically, but what has happened in the first couple of episodes in this season and what's happened in season four and season three. So nothing, no spoilers about what will happen, but what has happened may be spoken about. So I don't want anybody to be upset with me. Otherwise, if you're all cut up, it should be some fun Breaking Bad talk. One of Philadelphia's favorite sons, probably top three favorite sons, Andy Greenwald of Grantland.com. Hey, man. Top three. God, everyone's in a good mood. Thanks for the Cole Hamill deal, huh? You must be fired up, right? I'm loving it. This is the best possible day to be on Philadelphia Sports Radio. Everyone's in a good mood. Yeah, well, but that's not the best. I mean, you, you're from here. Sometimes the best day is when everybody's in a bad mood. Well, that's right, but I feel like this is the best day for me to be a guest. Yes. Not the best day to be calling in. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, there won't be any. So what'd you have that guy on for? Yeah. That's right. So, um,. So I'm watching, uh, by the way, are you thinking playoffs yet for the Phillies or no? Are you there yet or no? No, I can't be. I mean, okay. I, we're, you know, I, I feel like, like, uh, like Mike, the, we just found out Mike on Breaking Bad is a former Philly cop, right? So I feel like I, we, that face that he makes, that disappointed face, that's the face I wear every day during this baseball season. So. <laughs> I, I, not yet. I mean, but these last few games have been pretty exciting. Um, yeah, it just feels like this is fun baseball. It's not just a win, but the way that they've won. I mean, down six for a team not to have any comebacks after the seventh inning for over a half a season, and then to have you know four of them in one week is just kind of crazy. No, it's unbearable, and it, but it actually brings back some fun memories of 2007, right when they had a terrible bullpen, but they were still making it exciting every night. Yes, sir. Um, so after the game this afternoon, I watched episode two of, uh, of this season of Breaking Bad. And I, it occurred to me that I don't like anybody on the show. Like, nobody is particularly likable. Have you ever seen a show become so popular without any characters who are really like, you know, the hero or, or particularly likable? No, I think it's one of the most amazing things about the show. I feel like it's been totally fearless for that exact reason that you said, and that the the nominal hero of the show, right, is is, is Brian Cranston's character, Walter White. And the whole purpose of Breaking Bad from season one through, you know, what, what's ultimately going to be the last season is taking a hero and turning him into a villain or revealing maybe how he was a villain all along. It's it's pretty risky, and it's actually a testament to how just entertaining and well-paced and, and you know, just well-made the show is that it keeps us hooked. And I was getting, what, what is it about Breaking Bad? So if it isn't people that, that somebody likes or that they're cheering for, what, do you, what makes it good? What makes Breaking Bad a good show? Why do people like it? Well, first of all, it's just it, it's incredibly exciting. It's incredibly visceral. It's pretty funny and, and pretty shocking at times as well. And, and, and probably one of the best, certainly I think the best plotted shows on television and one of the best acted shows. But um, in a piece I wrote for Grantland the other week, uh, right before the season, the argument I was trying to make is that, you know, a lot of people say, and I'm, I'm among them, I said this, that, that, you know, we've been living through a golden age of television. But I feel like what's sort of become like the de facto style for the golden age of television, when you think about shows like The Sopranos or Mad Men, are shows that are very, like, um, intellectual and written, you know, and very much about the internal lives of the characters, even when the characters are mobsters. It's really all about sort of like their internal emotional journeys. 
I feel like Breaking Bad is about a scientist and it really approaches things scientifically. You know, it's very physicalized. It's very, like I said, it's visceral and intense, and it's a complete corrective to that sort of thinkiness that we're used to at this point on Sunday night. Talking to Andy Greenwald of Grantland.com about Breaking Bad. The show feels like at some point, maybe it was in season four, maybe it was the end of season three, turned or shifted and became kind of a different show um, that that is more, that is as much about the story as it is about the people in the story, I guess. I guess it's just that the show feels different to me um, in in the last season and this season. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, well, I, I think that the, the what's been so interesting about it, and I feel like a lot of people who have not watched it, um, sometimes I've, when I've spoken to people and recommended it, they've given the first few episodes a shot and sort of checked out, and I always tell them you have to keep pushing. If it didn't hook you right away, the show builds and builds and builds, and it's one of the rare, I think maybe the only show ever that has gotten better every season. And I think the reason it's gotten better is because the stakes have gotten higher, the situations have gotten crazier um, year by year by year. But... Um, but, yeah, I think the other thing that really differentiates it, though, from all the other shows that we've been talking about and really any other show on television is that um, Vince Gilligan, he's the creator and showrunner, is really only telling one story. You know, on most shows, there's the, like on, say, Mad Men or something, there's your Don Draper, but there's also Peggy and there's, you know, there's Roger. There are all the other characters around Don Draper. It's not just his story. It's the story of The Office or The Times. Um, Breaking Bad is just the story of Walter White, as, the, as Vince Gilligan likes to say, going from Mr. Chips to Scarface. That's it. All killer, no filler. Do you think Walter White, deep down, has become a bad person, or do you think Walter White is lost, just in too deep? I don't think he's lost. I mean, I think that's what's been so interesting about it, is because it's been so gradual, we've seen it. And we've seen, you know, even from the very beginning, there were these flickerings of the man that he is now. There was this enormous ego and this enormous sense of entitlement that he had been wronged, that, you know, the world had passed him over, that he deserved more. And so in the beginning, when he started cooking meth, it was, you know, ostensibly to get enough money to pay for his medical care because he's diagnosed with cancer in the, in the first season, the first episode even. But really, that's sort of fallen on the wayside, not just because he's in remission, but because that was always sort of a convenient story. Like, he's always been this, this guy who's had a very, very high opinion of himself and wanted others to feel that way about him too, wanted to be respected, wanted to be, wanted to feel powerful, you know? And so, Saying words like good and evil, which you know I've, I've been saying since I've been on the air with you, are a little reductive almost because it's really just about like him. It's almost like this has always been in him, and it's finally coming out. And 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 certainly we've seen so far this season, he's he's almost unrecognizable from who he was at the beginning. But it, but I think it's been a, a constant thread throughout, and it's kind of scary. One of the the most important moments in the series to me is when he went into remission and he looked sad and it was almost like his excuse for doing everything went down the drain and he yeah. he, he was upset that he wasn't going to die you know he didn't know he didn't have ex, he didn't have a a kind of a plan for after this yeah i mean you could make the case and i feel like this is one of the things that sort of does your head in about the show is that you know he never really was alive until he was about to die and he was never really alive until he was suddenly basically killing other people whether it was through the drugs he was cooking or you know eventually running them over with his terrible car yeah that my girlfriend is catching up on the show she refused to watch it and then finally she's gone through like three seasons in um in in a week and a half but she just got the one where the where he hits the guys with the car and she was just she's like what's going on you know the end of season three is such a yeah you know, such a rush all of a sudden it, it's so 
crazy the show. I mean, we, you know, all of us now, like in this age of Netflix, like I know we've all probably gone to these binges where you, know, you catch up on shows or get really into shows you missed the first time around. But none of them like leave you feeling like you've been, you know, you've had a lost week at Jesse Pinkman's house, yeah. Breaking Bad. I mean, yeah. it leaves you like jittery, bleary eyed, and crazy. Like it messes up your sleep. Yeah. Um, th- these two episodes so far, what do you think? I loved them. I mean, I, I, again, I, I just was really impressed because, you know, um, the season four ended quite literally with a bang, and it took out um, one of the most memorable characters we've had on TV in a long time, which is, you know, was Gus Fring, the villain of the, of the well, basically the villain, more or less, of the last two seasons. And so my biggest concern was, like, it's a pretty great storytelling move, but it's also a pretty bold one to take, you know, one of your most charismatic characters off the board. Um, I needn't have worried, basically, because the one thing, especially in the second episode, the one you said you just watched today, it didn't just, like, blow up the retirement home, the bomb that went off at the end of last season. It blew the doors off the show because, you know, this week all of a sudden we opened with this totally trippy, totally brilliant five-minute sequence um, in the German company that was supplying the heavy machinery to make the drugs. And it's just totally trippy, amazing filmmaking, you know? And it's the sense that suddenly this world has just gotten so much bigger and the stakes continue to get bigger. And Walt's ego just is so... Uh, engorged at this point it's like he doesn't even he's completely clueless and so the danger is just lurking i think the first few minutes of the show are one of the best things ever because i almost am disappointed if it if i'm not trying to figure something out i think in the first few minutes now yeah it's the kind of thing where you know we you know if you get there have been a lot of cases where shows that you really invest a lot of time and seasons into, you can get burned, you know, because whether the spark is gone or they, they aren't able to, like, you know, seal the deals, whatever you want lost. to call it. Yep. Lost. Like Lost, which yeah. you know, I love the experience of. I don't regret all those years I spent both watching the show and reading about it on the Internet. But at the same time, yeah, the ending was pretty pretty infuriating. But this show is so carefully and immaculately plotted that they're almost just having fun at this point. It just feels like it feels like... It feels like anything is possible because it's so tightly controlled. Talking to Andy Greenwald of Grantland.com of, uh, about Breaking Bad, do you think, I was watching today looking at Hank, thinking that deep down Hank kind of knows, and he's just almost like a boyfriend who hires a private investigator to find his girlfriend who he knows is cheating. Do you, is that, do you think at all that the thought has crossed his mind that, that Walter is doing this? I don't think it ever crossed his mind. I feel like that's been one of the great jokes of the show was that it was showing how Hank was so good at these hunches and willing to like jump to wild conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Up to this point, at everything except this, you know, he laughed at. He basically just continues to laugh at at Walt and treat him the way that that you know Walt hated to be treated by the world. But I feel like in this last episode, the second episode, when the when you know the the head of the DEA and Albuquerque is retiring or you know being forced out and they're having that long speech about sea bass or whatever. Yeah. Um, He's basically saying, I invited this guy, Gus Fring, to my house. He met my family. I looked into his eyes. He stood next to me. And, and there was a close shot on Hank's face during that, which I don't think, I think some people have maybe over, like, jumped the gun and thought that maybe he was actually having some realization then. I think it's just more just prepping us for what's inevitably going to happen. Yeah, almost we were having the realization. He, because, you know, there was that same cookout scene even. It, what popped into my head was when they were having the party um, when Hank went into remission, or when uh, Walter went yeah. into remission, and there's that, you know, the, the grill and all that kind of stuff, That you know, a similar party where Hank had no idea what was going on. And how funny is this about the show that, I mean, Hank and the guy, Dean Norris, the guy who plays him, is great, and he's turned into one of the great characters on TV, but... 
you know, in any other show, he's the hero. I mean, he's the crusading drug cop, right? Yeah. I mean, he's the good guy, except we're desperately rooting for him not to figure stuff out. Are you ready for silly Breaking Bad questions? It's the best kind. Okay. Who is the best person in Breaking Bad? You know, just good person, and who is the worst person in Breaking Bad? Just like with my personal, I'm, I'm the judge, yeah. jury, executioner. Yeah. Um, who's the best person? Gosh. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, other than, you know, just the, the, the way he treats Mrs. Butterworth, I think probably Walt Jr. I yeah. mean, all that kid does is eat breakfast. You know? I mean, Walter does love breakfast. He loves breakfast. He doesn't, he's just a sweet kid who loves breakfast in sports cars. He's never done anything wrong to anybody, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, and for that reason, he's the character I want to watch the least. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's just like, what do you do? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But now it's become, the breakfast thing has become so comical to me. They're, um, they're definitely trolling us now. They're doing it on purpose. Absolutely. Um, if you could spin off one character of Breaking Bad, who would that spin off be? Okay, this is a great question because there was some talk that um, Vince Gilligan wanted to spin off Bob Odenkirk's Saul character, who's a lawyer, who's, who's a phenomenal character. That was what I was hoping you would say. But, but uh, I actually might argue I would like to watch a Mike spin off. It would be like a new version of The Equalizer, just like an, like an old badass just driving around fixing stuff. I mean, I would watch that show in a heartbeat. <laughs> but, but the Saul show probably has better legs and, you know, more wider appeal. Yeah, I, I can't figure out if the Saul character is realistic to me or not. You know, it's such a just a horrible but great lawyer. I, I like I can't figure out if it's a a parody or not, or if it, I think if, it skirts skirts the line of reality. I mean, there's some pretty you know late night. There's some pretty crazy pretty crazy lawyers advertising on the TVs. Um, is Skyler hot or no? Uh, up to me, no. Okay, that's just that's just that's just me. Um, I, I find Skyler a, a a problematic character. I find her kind of tough. Oh really? Tough yeah. to deal with, tough to root for. I don't know. I mean, I guess she's in a bad situation. So yeah, there are moments what, 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 where she's hot to me. Well, like she's not. I don't think physically she does it for me, but there's something about her, I guess, that um, I don't know. That's because she's ride or die. You know, I mean, she's she's laundering money. Yeah, um, she's loyal. I, and the other two questions we already addressed: Is Walter Jr. annoying? And the answer to that is kind of yeah. For sure. And is Saul Goodman believable? That's and, and with but, yes and no, I guess is the answer. But I didn't answer your first question. You had, the part of the first question was who's the worst? Oh person? right, who is and the worst person in Breaking Bad? I, it seems like not an exciting answer, but I feel like you have to say Walter because you know the entire show. Like I was saying, it's like one story, so everything is just stitched to him so closely. You know. Through the series, he's been completely oblivious to the real effects of his actions, but we've been shown time and time again that every decision he makes has an immediate repercussion that ruins lives. I mean, the biggest example of that was the plane crash, you know, that, that was woven throughout season two. I mean, everything he does turns to death for someone, and it just hasn't hit him yet. Yeah, and even you could see Mike in episode two of this season just telling telling him to his face, there's something yep. wrong with you. He, he's the only one to actually speak truth to, to his face. He said, you're a ticking time bomb, and I don't want to be around for the explosion. But the problem is, I don't think he's a time bomb. He's just more like an Ebola virus. Like, once he infects you, you can't get out. I think if I could... I, I'm glad that I don't have any idea how it's going to end, but I... I'm hoping that they don't tie everything up in a nice little bundle at the end. I, I like when things end like life ends, you know, without a, a real ending. I don't want to know exactly what happens, I guess, to everybody when it ends. I think we're going to get the end of Walter's White story, but I think that the one thing that these, the, even these two episodes have shown us is that the world and the interconnections of just like the international drug trade is just so enormous that, that there's no way they can they can tie everything off. 
Uh, Andy Greenwald, you can fire up, follow him on Twitter, at Andy Greenwald. Read his stuff at uh, grantland.com, which is uh, a site that you know I love. And the, the Grantland Quarterly, is that out yet, or is it kind of yeah, the newest thanks, one? Okay. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really fun project we do with the friends, our friends at McSweeney's Publishing. And um, it's a quarterly. We publish some of our best writing, some original stuff, some great artwork. And issue three is out now. You can um, read some new stuff. From uh, Bill Simmons, Chuck Klosterman. I have a piece about the office in there. There's a drawing where Ed Hockley, you, I know our favorite NFL referee, teaches you how to Dougie. Nice. And, uh, and the best thing in there is that Jonathan Abrams, who's one of the great writers for our site, did the oral history of the Malice at the Palace, and uh, you know, the, and the, the, the big brawl that changed the NBA forever. Yeah. And it's totally riveting reading, and that's that's all collected in there. So you can find that at Grantland.com, on Amazon, your bookstore, wherever. I interviewed Chuck Klosterman once, and I, I, um, I, what's it called? I transcribed it. It took me like 65 days to transcribe a 35-minute interview. He talks, he, he talks quickly. He says a lot of words. Um, <laughs> thanks very much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. It's always fun. Um, Andy, Gr- Andy uh, Greenwell from Grantland.com. Uh, Breaking Bad, second best show on TV, second only to Mad Men. Not a close second, but second nonetheless. Xfinity voice line is 888-729-9494, pound 9494 your AT&T cell. You can talk Breaking Bad if you want. Get back to uh, Eagles and Phils. And Brian want to talk about Shea Weber's contract next. Uh, my name is Spike Eskin, 94 WIP Sports Time is 1217. Sports Radio 94. WIP. You are now breaking bad information safe. You, you can listen. Adam Regner, producer, hasn't is in the middle of season four of Breaking Bad, so he said he did not listen to the last segment because he didn't want to ruin anything, and I understand that. Um, but I felt like I gave out a, a good enough warning. Thanks to Andy Greenwald of uh, Grantland.com for coming out and talking Breaking Bad. A great show, absolutely a great show. Um, I'm Spike Eskin. Xfinity Voice Line is 888-729-9494, pound 9494 on your AT&T cell. Brian has been holding on for a very long time. Thank you for holding on, Brian. What's up, man? Like good to hear a new voice, fresh voice. I didn't know if you were uh, uh, related to your father, but a couple of callers previous. Uh, your father's a legend. He is. Um, I have to tell you, real quick before I ask my question, if you don't mind me, did you, did you study on the West Coast, UCLA, or USC? My, Was that your I, I went to USC for one year, but my and I graduated from Syracuse, but my brother graduated from USC. So normally when people hear about... Uh, one of Howard's sons at USC. It's usually my brother uh, Jason who who went to USC. Wasn't too sure. I just came back. I was out there on business, and I love it out there. UCLA, USC, it's, it's, uh, LA. Yeah, yeah, he's just he's actually moving back out. The funny thing is, I went like I said, I went to USC for one year, and um, UCLA. It's amazing. USC is his private school, but for some reason is in South Central LA um, with big black gates surrounding the school. UCLA is the public school is in Westwood. is the most beautiful place. Like on Earth, um, but yeah, UCLA much nicer campus than USC. People don't realize that that's like the uh, uh, there were totally much rivals out there, but people don't realize USC is like kind of in the hood. It very not even that kind of in the hood, man. You, I was like a three blocks from Crenshaw, like you know, like I was driving through a neighborhood once, and I was like, "This is boys in the hood." I'm in boys. This is boys in the hood area, L.A. You know. Yeah, we uh, we look forward we look forward to uh, hearing your voice. Uh, we know you're you're uh, your own man, and like I said, your father's a legend. So thanks, buddy. So listen, the reason I thought and the reason I waited so long to talk was I have to tell you real quick before I ask my question. We prefaced this. I had a buddy of mine helping me move tonight, and uh. 
of course, that turns into stopping at the bar and having a couple of beers. Yeah, always. And not a Flyers fan, but always amazed at how sports works these days and the, and the contracts these guys are off, off of, uh, for, for example, uh, uh, Cole Hamels. So we're watching that. Uh, we're sitting there having a couple of beers, and we're looking at the TV, and I looked, and I saw this kid, Shay, what's his name, Shay Weber? Yeah. And although I'm not a major fire fan, my buddy is. And I, I turned to him and I said, Charlie, I said, is this guy really a real deal? Because I remember listening to the way I think a couple of days ago. And somebody from like Delaware County Times was on and said, this guy is the real deal. He's Chris Pronger, number two, if not better. And the Flyers lost him. And he said to me, he's a bride, he said, uh, Nashville could go under with this deal because their ticket sales don't even match this, what is it, 14 million or whatever the deal is. It's, guy. So yeah. my question to you is, is this kid that good? Number two, could it put Nashville under? And number three, are the Flyers that in shock that they lost this kid? Um, all right. First, first, is he that good? Um, yeah, he's like a top three defenseman in the NHL, and he's only 26. Not even a forward. No. Yeah, and he, he you know he he scored 19 goals last year. Like he's he's a very he's a do everything defenseman. So yeah, he's that good. He's not like you know th- there were some people that were you know back and forth on Ryan Suter, the other guy that they were going to get. This guy is legit, absolutely legit. Um, the second thing about them going under, no, I look they the, the reason what the Flyers tried to do was. See, this is the, the crazy thing about the NHL is that you can – the reason they sign guys to deals this long is, be, is to kind of circumvent the salary cap. But what the Flyers did was is even though the cap hit would have only been $9 million or whatever this year, they were actually paying him like $26 million. So they were trying to make it so Nashville just literally couldn't afford to pay him. Ticket sales are – The Flyers are the Yankees are like bullies now. Yeah, well, and it's everybody. It's the Phillies. It's the Flyers, it's like all of a sudden we, we cheer for the evil empires. Right. Um, but I, as far as Nashville going under, I've read the same things about what their ticket sales are. Right. We know that sports teams have incomes other than ticket sales. Uh, right. And something tells me that if Nashville um, Nashville matched it, they have a plan to stay afloat. Do you think the Flyers were shocked? No, I think what happened was they were trying to work out a deal and work out a trade so right. Nashville could get something out of it. And um, so the Flyers got frustrated, and the Flyers just tried to bully them into doing it. And I think that, that, that Nashville just didn't want to be bullied, and they wanted what they wanted, and if they weren't going to get it, they weren't going to do So I think Holmgren was probably frustrated. I don't think they were entirely shocked. All of the analysis I read from hockey people was it seemed like 70% of them thought that they wouldn't match and 30% thought they would. So it wasn't like 95-5, you know. I don't think it was a huge shock, but I, I think it was a, it's a serious undertaking for Nashville to take on that contract. And that was my question. Is that if you ever look at the 10,000-foot view of sports today and look at the NHL, it's just unbelievable that the, the, uh, the money these guys are getting and the NHL being like the fourth of the markets that, um, it, that this kid was going to get that. I was just more curious as to the, the Crosbys who were forwards and all that, that this kid was really that good, but they said he was he probably worth the money. He may have been, been able to turn the Flyers around. Yeah, well, see, the difference is, the reason why it's, it might not be a good deal for Nashville is because Nashville's not like a piece away. They're right. not a Shea Weber away from a cup, whereas the, the Flyers might have been, you know, and that's that's the difference. That's why it's maybe not a, a good buy for them. And you're right. Well, the, the thing with the hockey is that, okay, nationally, it's by far the, the fourth sport, but... It's so provincial, and some cities are so big into hockey that those cities can afford it. 
the Philadelphia is a very big hockey town, so the Flyers can afford it. Whereas, you know, um, in the NBA, it's so big nationally that Oklahoma City, even though it's a small market, can do it. Nashville, you know, is is different and doesn't right. you know make the same. Well, that's reason for my call. Uh, you know, not a big sport, and you're sitting there, and all of a sudden it catches your eye. You, yeah. know, you have a couple of beers, and you're like, you're like, you know, wow, this, this guy must have been that good for Flyers to, uh, to put that out there. Yeah. All right, Bri. Thank you. Thanks, man. Good luck with the move. Worst, worst process a human can go through is packing and moving. Just, like, awful, horrible. Just, there's, oh, you got to move, Adam's got to move. Oh, just... Oh, a friend of mine who used to work at YSP, uh, Gordon, who used to be on the air at YSP, he's got to move next week. I just feel awful for him. I've seen him go through moves. and he does. I don't handle it well, but um, it's just so stressful putting your stuff in boxes. Then you get it there, and it's still in boxes. You know, it's oh, it's the, the worst. Jeff, you're on 94 WIP. Hey, uh, before I get to uh, Cole Hamels, I have to mention uh, something about uh, Breaking Bad. Uh, Forget if it was you or your guest. Uh, I, I probably within the last year got caught up with uh, Breaking Bad uh, through Netflix, uh-huh. and I started you know watching it at a pretty torrid pace. Yeah, I I started having the strangest dreams, the most <laughs> screwed up you know meth making uh, you know violent criminal sort of dreams. It was yeah, awful. Well, it's terrible. You think I remember after I started watching, I, watched, I didn't have a job for like four months, and I watched all of Mad Men, I watched all Breaking Bad. The funny part about Breaking Bad is that when it's allergy season, I go and buy Claritin D, and I'm in like season two of Breaking Bad, and I go to buy Claritin D, and I'm thinking that the, the pharmacist is looking at me as if I said to her, I said, uh, I'm not going to make go make meth out of that. Like, I would have any idea how to go make meth. Yeah, I, I would have no idea uh, either, but I... Uh, but it was it's that it even sneaks into your head. It does. No, I would have no idea either, but I, I recently got laid off within the last month, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, uh, you know, it's, I could make meth. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do no, it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Huh. No, actually, uh, not to get on a tangent, but... Uh, there was some chemist who wrote a funny paper was saying, you know, meth is uh, readily available and so hard to buy Sudafed. This is how you turn uh, meth into Sudafed if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny, man. That's yeah. really funny. Here, you know what, Jeff, you want to talk about Cole Hamels, right? Yes, I uh, Do you mind if I put you on hold for one minute? Because I'm up no, against a break. I'm going to put you on hold. We'll come back. We'll talk about Hamels, all right? Um, yeah, it's... Um, the uh, the way Breaking Bad. It was funny. I went to see a movie Savages, and Savages is all about these two guys that I'm not going to ruin it. Good, it was a good movie. Um, I, it's all about these guys that you know, like just make this great pot and sell this great pot. Now you are listening to somebody who's I've never touched pot, I've never sold, never bought, but I swear, 100 percent swear. But I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, well, you know, I could. If they could grow it, if they could sell it. So between that and Breaking Bad, I feel like these shows, you know, people, as we've learned, are pretty um, pretty impressionable. Maybe maybe Breaking Bad is inspiring a whole new, you know, um, generation of meth makers and, and meth dealers. I mean, Walter White makes a lot of money selling meth. A lot of money. And what's his name? What's his, uh, what's his partner? Jesse. Jesse's such an idiot. And Jesse makes a lot of money doing it, too. You can watch it sometimes. You think, well, if Jesse can do this, I can certainly do this. Uh, oh, right. It is a TV show. Then you get reminded that it's a TV show. 
Uh, we'll talk about Cole Hamels next. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you explicit numbers as to why the Phillies should not have three pitchers making $75 million next year. Just very convincing. Very good numbers. I'd like to hear from you as well. Xfinity voice line is 888-729-9494, pound 9494 on your AT&T cell. I'm Spike Eskin, 94 WIP Sports Time. It's just a show. It's 1235. Sports Radio 94 WIP. Our Phils are on the road starting a series with the Braves. Friday at 630. It's leading on with Rob Ellis. Presented by CJ's Tire and Automotive Services. First pitch at 735. Fransky and Coming up at 1 a.m. Why Stone Cold Steve Austin did not participate in Raw 1000. We'll give you that answer. I don't know if you watch Raw 1000 on Monday. It was good. It's a little, I don't know how Monday Night Raw is going to go three hours every week. It's a little bit overkill. Uh, I'm Spike Eskin, X Voice Line, 888-729-9494, pound 9494 in your AT&T cell. Uh, Adam, uh, producer, was questioning my comment when I said that I hadn't uh, done any um, done any drugs or anything. And that is an absolutely, and I'm certainly not preaching or anything, but that is absolutely true. I haven't because I am... There is a lot wrong with me. I am a a very, uh, like, I'm, I wouldn't say, I'm not obsessive compulsive, but whatever I do, I do way too much, far too much. And if I were to start doing drugs, that would be, <laughs> that would be the end of me. Um, and depending on what drug it was, uh, it might be amusing to watch me from afar slowly disintegrate into nothingness, but... <laughs> I certainly would. My life would not be unlike that of Walter's in Breaking Bad if I ended up, or not Walter, of Jesse's in Breaking Bad if I ended up doing that. So, it's just a TV show, Spike. It's just a TV show. Jeff, back to uh, Cole Hamels. Yes, yeah, just a TV show. I'm telling myself that. Just a TV um, show. Just a TV show. Um, okay, so Cole Hamels. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about with Cole Hamels' uh, contract is it's very, very significant, not just for the Phillies, but for baseball in general. Uh, because uh, Cole Hamels' win-loss record is only, uh, I think, in the last three years, like 36 and 31 or something like that. And I think what that's kind of shown is that the, the newfangled way of dealing with uh, statistics and, uh, you know, all the sabermetric stuff. And I think people have finally come to realize, and I think the first nail in the coffin was when uh, King Felix got the Cy Young Award with, like, a 13 and 12 uh, record. Yep is that win-loss records are as similar uh, to, like, RBIs are a dependent stat on how well your team's doing. I mean, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, it was you only really judged a pitcher based off a win-loss record, and now uh, it's, it's essentially an irrelevant stat. And I think the general managers in baseball treat it that way. And I think the people in this town kind of know, like, Cole Howell is a very good pitcher, and even though his record is only a little bit above 500, it's it's not like he isn't actually a really good pitcher. Yeah, I I think two things about that. I I think you're right. I think it's slowly... It's slowly working its way down to regular people. I think it started with stat guys, and then it went to baseball writers, and now GMs are starting to buy into it. And But I will still hear the occasional, you know, Cliff Lee hasn't been great this year, but he certainly has been better than one in six, you know. Um, and, but I'll, I'll hear a lot of people point to 
um, his win-loss record they want when they want to criticize him. It's almost statistics are interesting in that people will use them. People will use win-loss record when they want to use win-loss record, you know, when it's important for their argument. And when it's not, then they don't. Um, the one thing that I will say is that uh, I think there is something to, and it's hard to quantify in statistics, but I certainly think there is something to a very good pitcher winning games regularly. I think you can be a really good pitcher and have a year or two where your win-loss record doesn't come out in your favor. But well, I th- it's, but I- it's kind of like RBI. Like if you get a lot of hits, if you if you hit for power and you um you will get a lot of RBIs, but you can't really judge a hitter based off of RBIs because it tends uh, in a one one sort of correspondence sort of way. You can't judge this uh, hitter against this hitter. Well, you, because it depends on how many people are on base. and that's a, Same thing with, like, you can't really use win-loss record because you don't know, you know, if I'm on the Mariners and they're only scoring two runs a game, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bad record sort of thing. Well, right. I, I agree and I disagree. I, I agree to an extent. I think what it means is it means that you can't use RBIs independently of other stats. You can certainly use them. I think it is, and I think you can use win-loss record as well. You just can't use it without also considering what happened. Like, let's think about Roy Halladay for a second. Roy Halladay was not on a great team in Toronto, but Roy Halladay won 17 games, won 20 games, went you know 16 and seven, right, 16 yeah. and five, went 22 and seven, went 19 and seven. So, um, you know, I think the the next step with Hamels is Hamels. Look, Hamels last year was probably as good was was maybe even better than he is this year and his record was wasn't I think his whip was like 922 last year like Hamels was really 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 good last year he didn't have the record to show for it but right. I think the next step with Hamels is to become and this again this isn't quantifiable in statistics really but is to become the, become a stopper to become the guy and it's it's hard to say what the difference between a really good a guy with really good numbers and the guy is but all i can do is say that roy halliday is the guy you know and, and well, he's on it for over a decade right right yeah right. but and i was saying you're like but even um, when, but the thing about Halliday is, is that even when Halliday doesn't have, he goes through that month every year where he doesn't have his best stuff, where he hits a wall, but he still, up until this year, has found a way to be productive during that time, you know, to maybe not go eight innings in one run, but go seven innings in two runs, you know what I mean, and still, right, yeah. and still be a good pitcher. So, um, so I think that's the next step for Hamels. All right, I'm going to go back to trying not to make math and All right, don't, no math. find a new job. I, right. you know, good luck, Jeff. I'll tell you what, Jeff. I, um, you know, it can, I wouldn't be here right now if I didn't lose my job. I mean, I, I actually walked in today, and um, you might think that based on my lineage, based on the fact that my father worked here for so long, that I would take for granted being on WIP. But I don't. And I walked in here tonight. You know, I work at work here in the office during the day, and I came in here tonight around 9 o'clock, and I saw the logo, and my battery was dying on my phone, so I couldn't do it. But I went to take a picture of the office here because I think it's such a thrill to work here. It's just such an honor to be 
to work on WIP. You know, it's like it's a legendary radio station, but this wouldn't happen if I hadn't have lost, you know, been unemployed. So sometimes those things can can be a blessing. Sometimes losing your job and it's tough. It's it, it can be the toughest thing in the world, but um, a lot of times it opens opportunities that you wouldn't have gone after if you already had a job. Sometimes those are better opportunities, um, and sometimes it makes you think about making meth. So I guess I guess it could go either way. Dave, you're on ninety four WIP. Hey Spike, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Okay, I uh, wanted to get your opinion on on the Sixers. It seems like basketball is your game of what they've done this off season. Um, I, I'm kind of a novice to it. Not it just it, it just doesn't look like they've done any anything real constructive this off season. You hear it's uh, well. First of all, Hall is playing the. Uh, uh, the power forward and, and Kwame Brown. What's, what's your opinion on this so far? Well, I don't think Hawes playing power forward uh, is a real thing. Um, I think when, when you look at uh, combinations in the Sixers front court, I think Kwame Brown goes pretty well with um, Thaddeus Young, and I think Spencer Hawes ends up going pretty well with Lavoy Allen, uh, maybe Arnett Moultrie. So I think my guess is that Doug Collins is not a moron, and Doug Collins is looking at it and and unwilling to hand Lavoy Allen a starting job. And un, and I think what he's doing is he's challenging people. I think he's challenging Spencer Hawes by saying you better come into camp on, in shape because you're going to have to guard people faster than you. I think he's challenging Lavoy Allen and saying, look, you're going to have to earn these minutes. They're not just being handed to you because you had one good playoff series. And as far as their moves, they have been... I believe that they have made positive moves in that they have not committed big money to people who don't deserve it. That they have shown two things. That they are committed to allowing their young players to play basketball. And they are committed to waiting for the right time to try to strike and sign somebody. And if that, unfortunately, in the NBA, that means having some years where you're not great. Now, I think at the same time, they went and added, look, there hasn't been a shooter on the Sixers in years, like a legitimate shooter who can play basketball. Mm-hmm. But the Sixers went, and the one thing that would have looked really nice while Drew Holiday and Evan Turner and Andre Iguodala were on the court was a guy who can park himself on the three-point line and and just knock down shots. And then Darrell Wright, they got a guy who hit more three-pointers two years ago than anybody in the NBA. And Nick Young, they got a guy who, if Doug Collins can kind of harness him, look, what Nick Young is really, really good at is coming off of curls and shooting and, and spot-up shooting. What Nick Young is not good at is like, is, is, um, is when you give Nick Young the ball and say, go ahead, score. And the problem with Nick Young's coaches is they've allowed him to do whatever he wants. But if Collins can kind of take these two guys and use them to their strengths, then I think what he's done is, I think what they've done is, without committing too much money to a bad player and without, you know, mortgaging the future, they've kept the team competitive. Now, you may say, well, that'll prevent them from getting a better draft pick, which it might, um, but I don't think even without doing that, I, I don't think that you, you want a really terrible losing atmosphere here. I don't know that you have, like, you don't have a Kevin Durant, so it's nobody that you can just count on that in two years they're going to be really good. So mm-hmm. it's a way to give us an entertaining product without doing what they did with Elton Brand and, and to an extent doing what they did with Iguodala hamper and Sam Dallenbear, hampering the future of the team by handing out contracts they shouldn't do. So I guess when I have this conversation, I always say to people, okay, you don't like what moves they made. What moves should they have made? 
And the truth is, is that there just weren't moves out there for them to make, I don't believe. Yeah, so do you see this as something where Collins has, has got like a jigsaw puzzle and it's going to be different every now that you said it's going to be combination, so it's going to be more or less work to Collins' strength with this. Is it, is it Collins' strength how to put the five best guys working together on the court and it's going to be a mix and match thing every night? Like you'll see some nights where Hawes and Allen play more minutes and another night where Brown and, and, and Young play play more minutes, whoever, whatever works best as far as matchups against other teams and so on and so forth? Well, yeah, well, he's got so... And the, the thing is, is they have... They have so many young players. Like they have to find minutes for Moultrie. They got to find minutes for Mo Harkless. They got to, and while still playing Turner and Holiday. And I think it's going to be, um, on one level, they're, they're pretty deep, and they've got a lot of guys that you think can play or, or might want minutes. But it seems like they got twelve guys trying to find twelve guys all these minutes. Well, and so it seems like I guess it's going to be survival of the fittest, whatever whatever best works each night. Yeah, and and there was no. The thing is, is there was no move out there that would have made them a next level team. There just wasn't. And I'm not even talking Miami next level. I'm talking about like. Um, Nets or, or at this point or Celtics next level. There was no, there was no move to make them best of the rest. So why not just figure out who's good? And I think that's what they're doing. And I think they'll figure out who's good. And I think they'll, they'll be an entertaining product. And look, I wish they didn't sign Spencer Hawes. I just, I think he sucks. I yeah. just like, but, but the thing is, is that who else? There's nobody else there. There just wasn't. So if the, the contract's harmless and it's only two years and it'll be two years more than I want to watch him, but it isn't the end of the world. So. Did they, did, 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 have they given up on Vucevic and should they have held on the brand to hold on to the amnesty since it's going to go for 10 years? No, it's only really going to go for six years because they, oh, okay. they, they can, uh, it's a 10-year CBA, but here's the deal. To use the amnesty, it has to be a guy that you signed under the old CBA. Okay. So the only guy that they would have had left would have been Iguodala, Iguodala. and they're not okay. going to amnesty Iguodala. So, um, so that's that's that kind of. So no, I, I don't think. And Vucevic, um, Collins clearly, and, and I know they loved him when they drafted him, and I know they like his skills. But Collins clearly fell out of favor with him at the end of the year, gave him no burn in the in the playoffs, and and has said that he's got to get tougher. And I think um, I think that they really believe that he's got to he's got to step that up. He's got to show that he's a tougher player. Thanks for the call. You got uh, it. Thanks for the call, Dave. Yeah, I think they really. I don't think they've given up on Vucevic, but I don't know that they're they're thrilled with him. Because if they were thrilled with him, um, maybe they wouldn't have brought in Kwame Brown. Because Vucevic is a center, and Spencer Hawes is a center, and Kwame Brown is a center. I don't care what Doug Collins is in a press conference. None of those guys are power forwards. That's not what that is. So, uh, Billy wanted to talk about Sixers and Cole Hamels. So I have him coming up. And find out why Stone Cold Steve Austin did not appear at Monday Night Raw. Find out... Why it may be a good thing for CM Punk to be a bad guy. We are talking Raw 1000 next with Ange, our uh, WWE Spike Eskin show correspondent. Uh, you as well, Xfinity Voice Line 888-729-9494, pound 9494 on your AT&T cell phone. I'm Spike Eskin, 94 WIP Sports Time is 1255. Sports Radio 9.